0: We're living through a time of enormous technological, social, and even geophysical changes. Just thinking about what's going on right now can be overwhelming, let alone trying to contemplate what's coming next. Our guest this week is Peter Schwartz, a futurist. Peter is one of the foundational figures of the field of scenario planning, and wrote the celebrated book The Art of the Long View. He's also one of the founders of the Long Now Foundation that we'll discuss. He led teams uh, for Steven Spielberg figuring out um, visions of the future for films like Minority Report. He's also uh, the kind of chief futurist at, at Salesforce. Um, so Peter is someone who, who regularly thinks about the future. And in particular, he thinks about not just what the future looks like, but what decisions we need to take now to meet all the possible futures that we may encounter. I found this an immensely enriching conversation. And in fact, every day since I've recorded this, I've been having the same thought. Um, Oh, I should have asked Peter Schwartz this. I should have asked him about, um, I don't know, the Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Asimov. I should have asked him about what happens if AI gains consciousness, and, and do we think that might happen? Or what if we start mining rare earth metals on the moon? Is that a good idea? And, and the point is it's really got me thinking about different ways of, of thinking about the future. Some take home points for me are that we should think about the future and we can do this in a systematic way. We can tease out the pieces that we think are almost inevitable. Carbon dioxide concentrations are gonna rise over the next decade. That's almost impossible to avoid. Will Trump have a second term? I don't know. Will Putin come to a sticky end? Also, these things are hard to predict. They're much more contingent, but we can still think about the different scenarios there. We're facing huge challenges, but this is not the first time that humanity has confronted social or technological upheavals. We should take heart from this, and we should contemplate what's to come, not from a standpoint of fear, but of careful thought. I'm James Robinson. You're listening to Multiverses. Peter Protz, uh, thank you for joining me on, on Multiverses. Pleasure to be here. Since we're talking about long things, the great arc of time, I'm going to take the liberty to to read quite a long quote from the, the beginning of your book, The Art of the Long View. So it's from Paul Valéry, the French poet, but it's from an F-day, uh of his from 1932. You know all this, but uh, um, I thought it was such a beautiful quote. I wanted to begin with this. All the notions we thought solid, all the values of civilized life, all that made for stability in international relations, all that made for regularity in the economy. In a word, all that tended happily to limit the uncertainty of the morrow, all that gave nations and individuals some confidence in the morrow. All this seems badly compromised. I've consulted all the augers I could find of every species, and I've heard only vague words contradictory prophecies, curiously feeble assurances. Never has humanity combined so much power with so much disorder, so much anxiety with so many playthings, so much knowledge with so much uncertainty. Do these words still ring true, do you think, almost a century later? Uh, even
1: more so. I mean, every word in that is uh, absolutely true today. Uh, Look, what what changed that that gave Valerie that uh, sense of fundamental uncertainty was uh, new knowledge. Uh, People knew new things and as a result could do new things and could relate to each other to do new things. It really was all about, in most sense, science, right? That is the ability to advance scientific knowledge, you know, and it really began to come apart with. Uh, relativity, and quantum theory, right? I mean, even the fundamentals of space, time, and objects became uncertain, right? Uh, And so uh, it really became a sense that almost anything was possible. And that opened up the future in new ways, because really until that time, you know, the future was like yesterday, that the likelihood for most people on the planet, even in 1930, was that tomorrow would be like yesterday, that your future would be like your parents and their parents before that. And progress was very modest. Things didn't change all that much, right? Uh, And your kids were likely to do what you did. You know, if you were a farmer, your kids were going to be farmers and so on. Uh, And that sense of continuity of time and history and so on, that was deeply embedded in the human experience that things don't actually change much in an individual's lifetime, all blew up in the 20th century, right? Uh, All of that began to change. And by mid-century, by his time, uh, things were changing unbelievably rapidly, even for him. Look, he grew up in in an era when cars were new, airplanes were new, radio was new, television was just being discovered, right? The world was connected in ways that had never been connected before. And so suddenly everything opened up in an, almost an explosive pace
0: and he says as well that all the augurs are unable to provide any kind of assurances you know that they're, they're just offering vague words and contradictory prophecies do you think we've got better at dealing with the future now i mean you are a futurist so i i, I assume that you feel that we're able to at least bring some techniques to bear so that we can confront all these changes and, and not just live with the confusion? Uh, yes, look, at it, it, it two different levels. There's a the level of
1: organizations who think and plan and make decisions for the future, and they are unequivocally, we've gotten a lot better. We deal with mm. uncertainty, we deal with change, we deal with the pace of change, as we're dealing now with uh, unbelievably rapid change. Uh, on top of which, uh, I'd say, let me call it in the general world of public communication, whether it's television, newspapers, or even in schools, uh, there's a more explicit discussion of the future, of what's possible, of what some of the uncertainties are, what some of the long-term issues are. Uh, So you can have a moderately well-informed conversation about some big long-term things, like climate change being Mm. one of the most obvious in terms of uh, uh, big long-term changes that the world thinks about, or technology. Uh, So I I think uh, you would have to say that there's a more generally informed conversation about the future that is not, Hyper, uh, let me call it method- methodical, right. within the world of organizations, government, corporations, universities, and so on, it's become much more systematic.
0: Yeah, I, that's really interesting, and and I think we can talk some more about the way that corporations and governments um, bring to bear these kind of systematic tools, and and, and your work on that. But but first, I want to touch on the second point on on how perhaps there is more of a uh, cultural appreciation of the future, as it were, um, because that's perhaps a message that I, I feel is um, goes against some of the prevailing thoughts where um, many would argue that we live very much in the moment and we're sort of uh, trapped in uh, a kind of endless news cycle, doom scrolling, uh, watching you know 10 second videos on TikTok and so forth. Uh, none of that seems very kind of future oriented. Um, but as you say, that, that there are these kind of debates around climate change and, and that demand that we think about the future, and our, people are engaging with those. Um, I wonder if you have any other anecdotes or perhaps examples of, of places where culturally um, we seem to be thinking a little bit long, more long term than, than might at first uh, we seem to be doing.
1: Uh, well, an obvious one, and you mentioned this in our, our pre-conversation, is the Long Now Foundation, mm-hmm. uh, an organization I helped start with a number of friends, Stuart Brand and Danny Hillis and others, all about long-term thinking and stimulating long-term thinking. And uh, just two observations. One is we've had many, many, many thousands of people join the foundation to become members, right? Uh, and the only privilege that the membership gives you is you get a better quality Uh, A video of our lecture series and our lecture series always sells out and all the talks are about long term thinking. And we literally get something on the order of 400,000 people uh, Mm. ultimately watching those lectures about long term thinking. So when you can get almost a half a million people engaged sure. in a conversation in a you know in a kind of very rigorous way, I mean these are not uh, lightweight talks and you know these are serious talks about long term issues in different fields of science and economics and history and so on that require some serious engagement. Uh, we're delighted, you know, uh, Kevin Kelly and I came up with that idea uh, back in the mid '90s, soon after we started Long Now, and uh, we're astonished at uh, the level of engagement. Uh, with uh, the, the lecture series. So that's just one example. Uh, I, I think, you know, if you think about uh, science fiction films and, and the like, um, I, I've had the privilege of uh, helping to write a few of those. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my best-selling book, Art of the Longview, which you just quoted, mm-hmm. over, you know, 30 years, you know, much of my surprise, is still in print, 30 years later, uh, is, you know, sold close to a million copies. But two billion people have seen minority Report. Yeah. Uh, right. And, yeah. and they're very explicit uh, and highly detailed vision of the future that engaged literally billions of people around the planet. Yeah. And I,
0: I, yeah, I, I think it'd be now you've brought it up. I think it'd be great to talk a little bit about Minority Report. I, I know Spielberg brought you and some other folks together to. <laughs> right. Right. And it was just the story of the psychics and this cop. That was it. There's no
1: context. And, uh, So Stephen came to me and said, look, I'd really like to make the most realistic movie of the future anybody's ever made. Uh, So uh, help me and bring together a team of the best uh, experts you can find to work together to create that world. And that's what we did. Uh, So I brought together about 15 people, everybody from Jaron Lanier and Stuart Brand and a number of others, uh, all uh, to work together, uh, Joel Garrow, uh, Peter Calthorpe, all to create uh, a, a world for that story. And so we we had a, a hotel conference room in, at Shutter's Hotel in L.A. Um, and uh, for about four days. And uh, each day, Stephen, uh, the producers, uh, the script writers, the art director, Alex McDowell, would come in and start asking questions of this mm-hmm. panel of about 15 people. So what's happening with advertising? What does his apartment look like? What's a car like? Uh, what's a building like? Uh, what is a police station like? Uh, what is a shopping mall like? How is medical surgery work? And so on. And we went through all the details of what that world could become mm-hmm. and we debated and discussed and so on. Uh, I don't, we actually had artists sketching as we worked on it, sketching images for the story and so on. What's the car or the city and so on. And. Uh, It had a huge impact. What we ended up doing is writing what's called the Bible, which is the the kind of details of that world that then the script writer, the art director, the actors use in creating that world mm. uh, and so basically all the details of the world that you saw on screen we came up whether it, it came up with whether it was tom cruise using gesture control for his computer or the advertising that talked to him and recognized him as he walked through the shopping mall which we're now beginning to do with ai uh, The virtual reality experience, uh, actually augmented reality experience at the the AR studio and so on. Uh, All of these elements, uh, the uh, opticals uh, uh, recognition for identity, uh, the moving newspaper headlines, which one of the things I always like to do is put little jokes into these movies when I worked on them. And Mm -hmm. and the moment in the film where... uh, uh, the cop is escaping, he's on the subway, and uh, another passenger is reading a newspaper, a version of kind of USA Today in 2050. But the headlines change. But before the headlines change, uh, there's a little headline, mechanical nanotechnology triumphs. Well, that was a little pay-on to Eric Drexler, who came up with the idea of nanotechnology. Uh, and you had to know that. To know, I mean, Eric was an old friend, and uh, it just kind of goes by in a second or two. So there's things like that. Uh, in, in the story, little Easter eggs. Uh, uh, but that was basically the essence of it. And the truth is, what, as we were finishing this, uh, Stephen and I said, uh, we would like people a decade or so from now to say, why, that's just like in Minority Report when they see something. Mm. Um, and we, we wrote it in 1999. The film came out a couple of years later. Um, and the truth is, that is exactly what happened in yeah. regular. When Apple introduced its new uh, uh, headset, they talk. This is straight out of Minority Report, um, and you know it's that kind of. It became a vernacular, and that yeah. is what we or was to change the language people used about the future. Until then, the dominant image was Blade Runner. Yeah, uh, you know, which was absolutely brilliant. I mean, Sid yeah. Mead conjured up an LA of the future that was really uh, a truly original and amazing. Uh, we wanted a different one, a somewhat more realistic view, and and I think we produced it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing that so many of those things have come to pass. And it seems like we're on track for a lot of that technology being in place before 2050, I mean, much before 2050. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think we overestimated that. I mean, well, it was just a kind of almost arbitrary decision to give enough time for things to develop. It's probably mm-hmm. more like 2030.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, and I think coming back to this, this kind of cultural appreciation of, of the um kind of long term. Uh I'd also point to, and I'm curious about your views on this, on effective altruism and mm. the kind of movement that started there. Uh and it kind of arose from, I guess originally Peter Singer and then other philosophers out of Oxford, particularly Toby Ord, and 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 very recently Wilma Gaskell's written a, a bestseller, bestseller. And they seem to be thinking also about the future maybe in slightly different ways but it's it's also gathering in in popularity from what i can tell is that a group that you kind of uh that the long now foundation makes contact with or is it um you know so far you're kind of working on slightly different ways of approaching the future well, look, I,
1: I think it's really great that people are beginning to think long term like that. So let's be clear that that inherently it's a good thing. As far as I'm aware, there's not been much real contact across mm-hmm. this. We, we had uh, a Long Now board meeting recently. We we talked a bit about it, but uh, frankly, uh, not with much uh, concrete. Having said that, I think there is a slightly different orientation and there's a, 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 a an important question with respect to the new movement. Um, We are trying in Long Now to give people a a sense of deep time and the sweep of history. Mm -hmm. It is inherently altruistic. It is so that we can make better choices, but they're not effectively, in a sense, uh, automatically altruistic, or an understanding of science or the forces of history. You know, Neil Ferguson is a very good friend of mine, a British-American historian, mm-hmm. and he talks a lot about kind of long-term forces that shape the world and so on. And uh, he's by no means an altruist. Um, you know, he's a <laughs> hard rock, conservative, um, just this side of libertarian.
0: Okay. period. <laughs>
1: So you know, he is i mean—he's a nice guy and, and kind and generous. He's, I don't mean to say otherwise, but—and he's a very dear friend. Uh, but he's not an altruist. Uh, right. Uh, you can think long term without being altruistic. Right. Having said that, in the in the movement, there is an important tension that has developed, and that is the sense of okay, if you're really thinking about deep time and literally the billions of people yet to come, and mm. say, all right, in in human history, let's say humanity stays around for another. 100,000 years, let me just pick an arbitrary number, or even 10,000 years, like log now has, you know, that's mm-hmm. our time frame, uh, 10,000 years. Well, in 10,000 years, over the next 10,000 years, unless something goes drastically wrong, there are, I don't know, call it three or 400 billion people gonna be born and live, maybe more, Today, we only got a, you know, eight billion. So the fate of the eight billion versus the three or four hundred billion, why you can sacrifice these eight in favor of those because the numbers clearly work out in their favor, right? Saving those eight, three, four, five hundred billion versus the eight billion that live today is a powerful logic, unfortunately, inherently wrong. Uh, that is that that kind of logic leads you to, I think, a perverse conclusions. Like mm. You can do things today, for example, consume resources to create a new class of civilization and technology in such a way that it doesn't matter that you used up all the resources because you created an effective artificial world. Um, so it leads you to perverse choices that may not be optimal for the species, mm. um, as opposed to there are things we're doing today that have long-term consequences that we need to think about, as well as long-term issues that need to be reflected in the choices that we make today. And that those long-term are, let me call it the civilizational scale, which can be measured in, call it decades, maybe even centuries, but not in the scope of what the effective altruism movement is considering in terms of relative position of today versus tomorrow. Yeah, That's a peculiar twist for some people. The idea that people are thinking we should do good things for the deep future is a good idea.
0: Yeah. I think I I'd agree with some of those criticisms and I don't want to dwell too much on them because I I do want to have some debates or or invite effective altruists on and get their sort of picture on this. But I feel like looking too far ahead and kind of multiplying out the moral consequences can have these, yes, quite perverse implications, and I'm not sure how helpful it is. Um, You mentioned that the Long Now Foundation has this 10,000-year view. One one thing I really like, by the way, is that if you go on the Long Now Foundation's blog or or website, every date is prefixed with a zero at the moment because we're in Um, 02023. And that kind of, I mean, when you first see that, One thinks, oh, is there a misprint here or something? You know, what's going on? And then you realize, no, no, this is just reminding me that we're at sort of the the thin end of that wedge of of 10,000 years. Um, But I'm curious, why, you know, what led to it being 10,000 years, not 100,000, a million, a thousand? It it was very simple. Um, uh, It was
1: actually my idea. Um, And that was that... uh, Human civilization, in terms of really organized society, is roughly 10,000 years old. It's when agriculture was being born, villages were starting to happen, uh, humanity started settling down in various locations. And when that happened, then knowledge could advance, civilizations could develop. Uh, You know, there may have been a few little bits here and there earlier, but it was on that order, 10,000 years. And so it was that time frame in the past that said, OK, this was the beginning of civilization roughly 10,000 years ago. Mm. And there are forces that were set in motion that are still playing out today. Uh, And we need to be thinking at least that far into the future. So it was kind of the past matching the future. And so that's where the 10,000 years came from. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: I I think. on, On the other hand. I also have to think that the, the 10,000 years that are to come are going to be so much richer than the 10,000 years that we, we've had. I mean, it, just we in hope. terms of, I, I hope so, yeah. I mean, whether it's just, if you just think of the, the number of people now, I mean, the number of people in the year um, 0 BC was about 200, or 0 AD, <laughs> 0, it was about 200 million. So we're already, in, in some ways, there's just kind of 50 times as much life happening every year now, as in, as in that year, just because we have 50 times as many people. And in other ways, or additionally, each of those lives has so many more capabilities. I, I, just in terms of the kind of, one very cr- crude measure of this, um, this was mentioned by Casey Hanmer, another guest, simply that we have kind of a hundred times as many calories as our, at a disposal as, uh, a human did in the past you I know mean, previously they basically had the calories that that sustained them now we have you know cars and planes and all sorts not to mention just the kind of computing power and the kind of intelligence that we have at our, our disposal as well so yeah it's in some ways a balanced view but in other ways very imbalanced and i also find it kind of unfair when people say oh um, you know, we're not looking very far into the future, given that it's so hard. You know, just projecting a year ahead is projecting, you know, the equivalent of, say, 50 years in the year BC or zero BC. And, and actually, it's even harder than that because there's so much extra productivity now. Um, in fact, one of the most fun long term uh, long now talks oh, quite a while ago
1: was the science fiction writer and computer scientist, Werner Vinge. Mm -hmm. And Werner looked at the very long-term interplay between population and energy. The more energy you had, the more population you could support. The more population you had, the more energy you could generate but needed and so on. And he looked at this cycle over 50,000 years into the future.
0: Uh,
1: (laughs) And he laid out a vision of the interplay of the growth of population here on the Earth and spreading out into the galaxy uh, and the interplay of uh, how we uh, uh, create and use uh, energy uh, and it was absolutely brilliant. It's re- and it's it's very funny as well. It's really worth taking a look at. He had some very clever graphics to demonstrate his point. Brilliant. Yeah, that that sounds lovely.
0: Um, I wanted to uh, touch on another long now foundation story. Um, the the naming. How did that come about?
1: Oh again, that that was, we were discussing names. We were, and that, that was Brian Eno's idea long.
0: Yes, time. That's, that's the story I've heard. So yeah, it's, at, true.
1: it's true. And so you know, we were meeting and coming up playing, you know, uh with a, a lot of ideas. The clock was had already we had already come up with the idea mm-hmm. of the clock. That's where it began, really, with trying to build the clock. and, and so Brian just
0: Maybe just what's the clock? Uh oh,
1: Clock is I the 10 year clock, which was the central project that we began with. This was Danny Hillis's idea. Danny is one of the great computer scientists of the world, a truly original mind, one of the, the great actually there's a number of original minds in this group, and Danny's one of them. But he he had observed to Stuart and Brand and me, because we've been friends for years before that, you know, that he had always imagined a clock that would kind of tick once a year and the cuckoo would come out once a millennium and, and would kind of mark the passage of deep time and people would kind of celebrate when the cuckoo met came out every thousand years or so. And then, you know, we were just the three of us were chatting and said, you know, we should actually build one of those. And then the conversation got rolling and said, well, you know, maybe we should really do that. And we started thinking about designs and uh, then Alexander came in and Kevin and Brian, and and we pulled that whole gang together. This must have been about 90, or so, 96. And uh, uh, Jeff Bezos had just before gotten modestly rich uh, starting uh, Amazon. He was still just selling books about that time. And Jeff got fascinated with it and agreed to fund the project. And it became the real thing. And it's now essentially almost done. It'll probably start up next year. Uh, it's, it was built in a uh, cavern in Texas on land that Jeff owns. Uh, it's about 250 feet high in the cavern that we built a, a carved a spiral staircase around it. If you go to the Long Now website, you can see videos about it, and it's quite it's a spectacularly beautiful device uh, and intended to go for the next 10,000 years. And uh, solving the design and engineering problems of it led an, an organizational and so on led to all kinds of interesting questions. That was part of the point of it, that having to solve this problem of building a device that would persist for 10,000 years forces you to think about a lot of interesting questions which we did uh, and uh, it, there's a book about it already. And, you know, some people think it's totally stupid, right? But, it, you know, but it, it, it in some ways we thought about it as a pyramids from our civilization to the future civilization. You know, if you go to Abu Simbel uh, in uh, Egypt and you see these amazing giant statues of the Egyptian gods uh, or Petra uh, in Jordan, you know things that are thousands of years old, and you you feel that deep sense of history. Mm. That's what it's about. Because the very little that we build today is intended to be around for the next ten millennia. This is,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I can't think of many other things. Although I did have um, Christian Book, who's a Canadian poet, and uh, he's trying to inscribe a poem, Well, actually two poems, but within a single text, as it can be read in in two. Different ways. There's a cipher that applies to the text. But anyway, inscribe a poem into the DNA of um, an extremophile bacteria, uh, D. Radiodurans, which is uh, very, very good at repairing its genetic code. Um, and yeah, his his belief or you know hope is that if he manages to do that, he he may have you know write a work of literature which outlasts everything else of human civilization. Um, could be. Could be. So yeah, these are these are probably the the two most long lasting projects I can think of. Although there's, it's interesting, there's a few. I've just been reading uh, Richard Fisher's book. Um, actually, he he tells the story. He's a he's a British journalist. written a book called The um, The Long View, very similar to your book, The Art of the Long View, in title. Um, but he he he's got a good rundown of a few projects going on, which I, I know you'll be aware of. There's. Uh, Actually, a kind of cube, a pyramid of cubes being built in Germany. I think one cube every decade, I think, gets put down a huge concrete cube. He actually tells the story. I don't know if you've heard it this way, but the story, his story of the naming of the Long Now Foundation is that um, Brian Eno went to a cocktail party in New York. And it was uh, in a loft, but in a really dicey area of town. He was sort of riding out there. Just thinking, am I going to the right address? Uh, he gets into the the building, has to sort of walk past someone slumped in the doorway, and he arrives in this just beautiful loft. And he talks, and the owner says, "Oh yes, this is the best place that I've ever lived." And apparently, the thought comes into Brian Eno's head: I want to be. You know, these people are thinking in terms of the the small here. You know, just what's surrounding them, and they're also thinking in terms of the the you know the short now, right? Um, and his. Apocryphally, the story is that he said to himself, I want to think in terms of the big here and the long now. Uh, I, this is the story, at least, which is in Richard Fisher's book. But I really you like know, that idea. It could be true. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I, I, we, we were brain, literally brainstorming a
1: bunch of ideas. And, and Brian, I, I, he didn't particularly tell that story. But he, you know, the, the ideas of the big here and long now and all those were the languages, that language that we used in that conversation.
0: Yeah. And I think it really matters, the naming
1: of these things. Yes, it turned out it worked. It was a good name. Yeah, It's very evocative and gets people to think which was our objective. What does that mean?
0: It's not obvious what it means. Yeah. Perhaps we can talk about some of the, I, I, I want to come back at some point to these kind of broader cultural issues, but let's get a little bit practical and talk about your work as a futurist, as um, I think there's some skills there for thinking about the future, um, which I want to make folks aware of. Um, I think for many people, the first thought of what a futurist is would just be someone who tries to foretell the future and tries to kind of predict what's going to happen. But uh, I think you have a slightly different take on things. So perhaps you can run us through that.
1: Sure. In fact, that's where I really started out. When I first started thinking about what I wanted to do, I, I sort of discovered the field. I wasn't the first. Uh, the first was really a guy named Herman Kahn. You might have mm-hmm. called Alvin Toffler. Uh, but uh, the, 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 I started out saying, oh, I want to uh, figure out a better vision of the future myself. But I quickly realized this was in the early 70s when I got to Stanford Research Institute, that actually the institutions of society, uh, business, government, et cetera, themselves did not have good tools for thinking about the future. Uh, They were stuck with either trying to predict based on uh, history uh, or imagine without science fiction, without reference to history. These were the two, two tools that were around, as it were. And um, one trapped you in the past and the other disconnected you from the past, neither one of which was a good basis for making decisions in an uncertain future. Because the thing that I had become quite convinced of as I studied things more deeply was that things were becoming ever more uncertain, going back to the Valerie quote. Uh, In fact, one of the very first uh, books that I encountered was a book called Limits to Growth which was using uh, computer models to predict the outcome of a variety of forces like pollution, population, energy consumption, resource consumption. And I, I studied these models fairly carefully. I even taught a class in it at UC Davis, when I realized that the models were only capturing a part of reality and that there were huge uh, forces not captured in that model that were going to create enormous uncertainties and that were not reflected even in the intellectual process of acknowledging that uncertainty. And I said, look, there's got to be a better way to think about this. There's got to be a better way to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. And so the the thing that I I, I concluded was that uh, what I really ought to be about is both developing and disseminating the tools to give people the means themselves individuals, organizations, institutions, et cetera, to do a better job of thinking about and making decisions in the face of uncertainty. The key leap actually happened, however, with uh, Pierre Vock. Uh, Pierre was the first head of scenario planning in Shell, uh, and I succeeded him. Uh, he was my, one of my most important mentors. And the thing that Pierre realized, and one of the things that had tied us together, was that the goal was not uh, better prediction, but better decisions. And that uh, the measure of success was not did you get the future right. The measure of success is did you do the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, getting the future right and ignoring it is not a success. Um, being a little off, but getting the but making the better decision is in fact a success, right? Mm-hmm. And and so what I realized was that you had to really spend an enormous amount of time trying to understand the mind of the decision maker, including your own, and. Uh, Try to understand what kind of an analysis of the future would influence and shape that mind and help it make better decisions in the face of that. And that was really the essence of what kind of shaped my work as a futurist. First, to recognize we needed better tools to deal with uncertainty. And second, that we were really dealing with better decision making, not better prediction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, there's clearly that element of persuasiveness that is. Not necessarily in people's thoughts when they think of futurists, but it's it's something that, as you say, you brought in and you realized that was was key because if you don't have that, decisions don't get made. The other interesting thing that I, I, I recall from from your book and um, other talks I've seen you give is that you you can find cases where you're Predictions or your your views of the future are divergent, but where actually they all point to the same decisions uh, being the right one. Yeah. and and i th- I think that seems another place where it's not about coming up with a single model of the future and just putting that on a piece of paper, but rather showing compelling visions of the future. And in some cases, one realizes that looking at all those different visions, actually, you know, it's obvious what we need to do. And you kind of cut through, you know, yes, there's uncertainty, but there's not uncertainty in the decision that you you take.
1: Um, Yeah, I think that's right. There, 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 There are two elements to that. The first is there are some decisions, as you rightly pointed out, that are robust, that you do this and it'll work in a variety of different possibilities and you'll have a good outcome. Might be slightly different outcomes in that. And so you can Design, you can test various options against multiple futures. And uh, if you can find those options, it isn't always the case that there are, but if there are, then you've got something very powerful. The other is that sometimes in this analysis, you see some things that are inevitable uh, mm-hmm. with maybe consequences that follow. So for example, when I was still in Shell in 1984, we were studying the future of a country then called the Soviet Union. You may remember that existed probably before your time. Um, But the Soviet Union was, of course, in a deep Cold War with the West, uh, and we were studying the possibility, was there ever a chance that we could end up looking for oil in the Soviet Union? And in in our analysis, starting in 84, we reached the conclusion that they were headed for a massive economic crisis in the next few years. And we said, look, it is inevitable that there's gonna be a crisis. So that is coming. So the interesting question is what comes out of that crisis? And then we came up with two scenarios, uh, one of which we called the new Stalinism. The other we called the greening of Russia. And that would be what happens if a guy named Mikhail Gorbachev comes to power. And a few other things happen. And literally, the next year, Gorbachev comes to power and said, we knew which scenario we're in. Soviet Union is going to be gone in five years. The Berlin Wall will fall by 1990. And we'll be looking for oil in Russia. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what happened.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting as well that having those scenarios, it prepares you for when the event does happen.
1: Exactly, I mean, exactly. You understand the meaning of those events because you've actually thought about them in advance.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, what are there inevitables now that you could point to that that are maybe things? I mean, there, there seems to be some. Yeah,
1: it's obvious, it's already happening, which is yeah. the climate crisis, right? Uh, we, 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 I, I, my first climate assessment was 1977, when I was still at SRI, and um, I was part of it as a junior research person on, on uh, a team studying climate change, and or the potential for climate change at that point. Uh, and I... I Since my background was aeronautical engineering and astronautics, I had a very deep background in fluid mechanics and the math of fluid mechanics. So I helped build some of the first climate models. And our conclusion was that it was not just about a kind of gradual global warming, but we were going to see an increasing frequency of extreme weather uh, moving up and down over a very long period. And it's very obvious that we're in it now. Uh, you know, you don't have to be, yeah. have to be pretty blind and in, in real serious denial to uh, ignore what's going on in the world, even as we speak today. And uh, as a result, uh, we are going to respond to climate change or we're going to live with climate change or both. Um, that is, uh, we we now see that we are in it, it's already too late to stop it, uh, to change the direction of climate change. We have to go carbon negative. And all we're doing right now is going from, uh High growth of carbon to a slightly slower growth of carbon. Uh, we're still putting more carbon in the atmosphere for the better part of the next century. And as a result, we are locking in centuries of climate change. Until we yeah. can get to the point of sucking out that CO2 uh, uh, out of the atmosphere, uh, we are going to be uh, in a long period of climate change. So we need to do both, adapt and uh, continue to do make the ma- major efforts to uh, uh, slow the rate of climate change. But The truth is, this was not actually a policy failure. It's important to recognize. When did climate change really start? The beginning of the industrial revolution. We started using coal Mm -hmm. in large quantities. That's, you know, by uh, 1890, it was already too late to stop climate change. We were already burning enough coal. By the beginning of the 20th century, it was already gangbusters. The analysis as early as 1910 showed that coal burning was gonna lead to uh, climate change. So, we, you know, th- this was the inevitable outcome of the vast expansion of burning fossil fuels in huge quantities yeah. all over the planet. And we're still doing it. so. Yeah. There's no sign that uh, we're going to slow this down radically anytime soon. So, the implication yeah. is it is inevitable that we're going to see massive climate change worldwide. And in fact, uh, one right now that we're seeing an early signal of that's very important. Uh, uh, is the potential for the collapse of the Gulf Stream, yeah. and it is the Gulf Stream that keeps Northern Europe warm and pleasant. Uh, uh, the Gulf Stream goes away, and Northern Europe becomes Siberia. Um, yeah. We may be headed toward that uh, in the next decade or so.
0: I, I know you you presented a, port, a report to I think it was the Pentagon. Was it maybe yes. in around around the year two thousand? Yeah. Um That actually. They wanted to know what's the worst case scenario, I I think, um, with regards to climate change. And and, and that was like front and center, the collapse of the the Gulf Stream. Um, Is is it a climate change scenario? When the climate shifts, it, it sometimes moves
1: gradually, but then other times it jumps. Yeah. For a variety of reasons that have to do with the flow of ocean currents, atmospheric currents, et cetera. And uh, so if you look at the long-term climate record, you see a lot of big jumps. And yeah. it is entirely plausible, not a gradual change, but a big jump in change.
0: Yeah. I think that's what, I mean, that really worries me. As Rightly. you say, we've locked in, right, a lot of the, the climate change already, and it's continuing... It's continuing to um, to get worse, and yet we've not seen any of these jumps, right? We, we, we're sort of boiling the frog, as it were, and we're turning up the thermostat. That's bad enough, right? But to contemplate what could happen if you know there's uh, Gulf Stream you know, collapse, permafrost the 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 right melts. Yeah, yeah, look, we may be seeing the jump right now. I don't mean just just the
1: Gulf Stream one, but the extreme weather we're having. Yeah, if the new normal is extreme weather of the sort that we're now experiencing. Extreme heat, extreme storms, extreme flooding, and so on in more places around the world. theres I have never seen a heat map of the planet like is going on literally today as we speak around the world. Yeah. And so uh, I, I think that jump may have happened
0: now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's look on the. Uh, you know, what are the what are the things we can do about this? Well, um, there's a
1: lot, but they're obvious, right? And we're doing many of them, but not all of them. The most obvious things are, you know, reducing energy consumption, getting more efficient our mm-hmm. energy consumption, all of that sort of thing. Moving away from fossils to renewables. Uh, the the one big thing we're not doing is enough nuclear power. We should mm-hmm. moving moving aggressively to building nuclear plants all over the planet. Uh, we can now build smaller scale ones. I mean, literally today, or actually it was yesterday, the first nuclear plant in decades in the United States turned on in Georgia. Uh, there's another one that's coming a few years from now in that same plant. And that's it. There's no others under construction. Uh, mm-hmm. Nuclear, is clean, fossil-free, lasts forever, produces baseline, uh, baseload power. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that France has some of the lowest emissions in the world is because almost all of its electricity is nuclear, right? Yeah. The Germans, the good, clean, green Germans had a lot of nuclear plants, but uh, Angela Merkel got frightened after Fukushima, Fukushima. and started yeah. shutting them all down. So now they're burning dirty coal from... Uh, 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 Germany and Poland and have increased their, their the fastest growing emissions of in any industrial country in the world. So it, we're bloody stupid in that regard. We should be building mm-hmm. tons of nuclear plants, uh, moving toward electric vehicles. We're doing that. That's clearly yeah. happened. Uh, we could do it a bit faster, but not much. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of the right things, but not all of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of Promise uh, there, the attitudes are changing around nuclear, and I think that has to happen first before we yes. see boots on the ground, building of new new stations. Uh, in the UK, they're they're talking about a new reactor coming online every year. There's no actually plan for that, but but again, it starts with the rhetoric. Um, a lot of investments in in coal in um, in fusion as well, which is really exciting. Yes. Um, And if that happens, that's a really, really
1: big deal. Look, there's a a company outside of Boston called Commonwealth Fusion that just came out of uh, uh, MIT. And they believe that within a decade, they will be able to start building mid-scale fusion plants uh, that will generate essentially an enormous amount of energy from uh, hydrogen fusion uh, and a limitless source of fuel. Uh, If they're right, then that changes the game. Uh, That's a big game changer. Uh, It is still uncertain whether that will actually work. Uh, In fact, I am getting a briefing on the detailed physics of it because I'm uncertain about it. Uh, We have proven with the National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore Labs that you can actually create a fusion, which is a big deal. Uh, The technology that they're using there is not practical for a fusion plant but what commonwealth is doing is building basically a small tokamak a small magnetic bottle to create uh uh the fusion if that works new
0: future much better future yeah it's it's encouraging that there's so many different kinds of bets that are being placed on on fusion i have to say i think yes, the, I, the other thing yeah the other thing I'd point to is just the, the cost of renewables. Uh, and that surprised me how much the learning rate has brought down and, and continuing to bring down renewable cost. And I think we could see- Thank China for that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It
1: wasn't anything we did in US or Europe. The Chinese just did the thing that has always worked before, produce a ton of them, right? Yeah. And, as, and as you produce more and more, you get better and better and cheaper and cheaper. Volume—it's just simple, you know, classic industrial learning curve. But they're the yep. ones who drove the price of solar down by eighty percent.
0: And, and no one thought it would work. The, the predictions for the price of renewables were all showing them sort of bottoming out at something that's far higher than that they're at currently. Yeah, and they've just been consistently wrong, right? So we've we've no, been consistently pessimistic there.
1: Yeah, nobody anticipated that China would do what it did and became the major producer of solar panels in the world for themselves and for export. That is what surprised everybody. And that's why the cost came way down. And some of that is also true for wind. I, we learned how to make wind turbines, and they did, too, much cheaper than we started out. So even wind has come down a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. So There's good scenarios here, and, and there's also yeah. possible Gulf Stream collapse scenarios. Um But again, I think it's probably something where everything is pointing towards the same decisions, right? We we need to invest right widely in lots of different technologies, place a lot of bets. Um, There's some there's some no-brainers, like it's clear that renewables are working and they're going to continue to get cheaper. Um, It's just we can't produce them enough and we can't connect them to the grids fast enough. We need to upgrade our grids. Um, Yeah. Uh, The other thing that we need to do, remember,
1: is to adapt to climate change. It is happening. It's going to happen. So, for example, coastal zones where there's lots of flooding, you know, uh, you you don't want to buy property in Florida these days. Right. Florida is a big sandbar, the whole state. Right. And most of it's going to disappear in the next few hundred years. Right. You really don't want Miami property unless you prepare to build some big dikes. Uh, You know, so there are a lot of places in the world that are, are going to face serious troubles. Amsterdam is a good example. Amsterdam's a wonder, one of my favorite cities in the world, but you know, it's basically at or below sea level, right, yeah. and the sea level is going to rise. But the Dutch are pretty good at building. Yeah, yeah. But they've got, got a long country. track record of, yeah. uh, of yeah. living beneath yeah. the sea level.
0: Yeah.
1: The Thames barrier is going to have to be twice as wide. Things mm-hmm. like that, that are going to have to adapt to a new world of climate change.
0: The other sort of elephant in the room is AI. Yes. Is is the kind of dizzying progress on AI something that surprised you, or is it in many of the scenarios that you, you've you looked at?
1: Well, as, as you know, I work as the, the chief futurist for Salesforce. Mm-hmm. So we've been investing slowly in AI. And then five years ago, I figured out where it was going. That is, we were going to about now have digital assistants uh, yeah. that you could that you'd have uh, essentially a interface that now we call ChatGPT. But we saw that five years ago and we started developing for it. Uh, and because I, we were I was doing the future product strategy and you could see all the pieces coming together if you did your homework, which we did. Uh, and we got it right. So it didn't surprise me at all. Um, and as you, you, I don't know if you've, you you pay attention to these things, but we've already made major product announcements uh, mm-hmm. building a, in AI. We, we've actually been doing it for quite a few years. We had a limited AI capability, uh, and the interface was uh, not not really conversational. What changed fundamentally was the conversational interface, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, actual uh, AI behind it has been a kind of steady progress. The discontinuity was the interface uh, Mm -hmm. and made it much more accessible to everybody in a great variety of ways and to be able to do things like uh, visualization as well as text and so on. The the other one that people have not paid attention to, that's a really big deal, which was our first AI that was of the new generation, which is coding. Yeah. AIs are very good coders. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you, I'm not a coder. I understand enough about it to understand what's going on. But, you know, I don't write code. But now I can speak code. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can create things by just asking my AI to do it. And it can write the code. Uh, that's a
0: big deal. Uh, yeah. That, yeah. that it can actually do coding as well. I think it's a much better coder than it is a reasoner in in many other ways. Mm. The kind of... Uh, I mean, perhaps that's because the reasoning that it produces is, is, is fairly bland. Um, yes. And having fairly bland code is is not a problem, right? People want their code to be kind of Blade. straightforward and yeah. uh, unfancy, as it were. Um, no, so, ro- yeah, I, 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 sorry? No
1: Rococo code.
0: Yes, no Rococo code. It's not like uh, poetry or something. Um, yeah, so I, I use the coding, I use coding Every day with a kind of assistant now, and I am a coder, but it yeah. it, it it's more productive, doesn't it? It's exa- that's exactly that, right? Um, Our coders are already thirty percent
1: more productive. Yeah, we've already seen the numbers; it's quite staggering.
0: One thing I'm curious about is whether you think we'll have a scenario where there's fewer coders, or where it's just like we've given birth, as it were, to uh, you know another generation of people in that the assistance that we're using are like just an augmentation of the workforce. And it's like every company has hired an extra, you know, 30% coders. Um, at least in my world, it never seems that we can have enough coders.
1: Right? <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> and like- answer, it's a both and. Some th- some tasks will disappear from the realm of coding because they're too simple and easy to be done. right? Uh, others will become ever more complex and more sophisticated and so on. And in some cases, not a matter of bland, but original truly original right. code, solve new classes of problems and so on. So I I, I don't think coders are going to go away. Uh, just like writers aren't going to go away just because we can now do a, do a halfway decent first draft. Uh, uh, the, the people who are, are in some ways most threatened are, let me call it, a mediocre research assistants. Because that's that's basically what you have is right. a mediocre research assistant. Right. You're a mediocre research assistant. You got a problem. Uh, because my AI can do a better job than you can. A really good research assistant, my AI can't do that yet. But it's also important to realize that we're uh, on a curve of learning that's very fast and very steep. So an important question is if you think about a classic S curve, you know, things start out, then they accelerate, and then they level out. Are we on the flat part of the curve? Have we already started on the steep part of the curve? Or have we already begun to top out? Are the models getting, you know, they're they're not going to get much more powerful and so on. Uh, A a good friend of mine is a guy named Richard Socher, one of the top AI professionals, uh, heads up a company, U.com, a competitor to Google in search using AI. And he was the head of an AI company that Salesforce bought a number of years ago. Uh, Absolutely brilliant guy. And Richard and I were talking last Friday, and he argues that we're near the top of the curve. Yeah. That with the current generation of technology, that we're not going to see the lang- large language models get much more powerful, that we're not see the classes of applications continue to get much larger and so on. So that we've saw, seen an explosive discontinuity here in terms of the nature of the interfaces and how we interact with AI, but it may be coming close to the top of the curve. There's others who believe we're still in the flat part and we've got a long way to go up and it's going to get in the next two years, three years,
0: much more powerful. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not sure of my own um, beliefs here. Is it, I, I, I certainly a couple of years ago, or even a year ago, I would have said, machine learning's great, deep learning, brilliant, but it's not going to produce an AI that has common sense. It's not going to solve those kind of problems. We're we're going to need to have some more symbolic. AI coming into play here, um, which has kind of gone out of fashion. But now I see some of the things that LLMs are doing now, and I just think, well, actually, they seem to be coddling on to something. Um, You know, there are, what was the phrase that was used in a paper recently, kind of flashes of general intelligence uh, appearing. Sparks, Sparks. that's it. Uh, I'd agree with that. Whether those sparks, you know, fizzle out or whether they, uh, you know, light a, a full fire and we... We end up with that just from kind of doing more of the same. I, I'm not sure. Uh, but I suppose I mean, we can think about all the scenarios here, right? Even if we're sort of in the middle of the s curve and we're we're close to capping out. We're going to be living with the consequences just of this level of technology for a long time.' Yeah. I've been trying to figure out all the ways we can we can use what we already have. like every day people are playing with these, discovering, oh, it can do this, right? Um. Yeah. We don't even know the, the power of the tools that, that are on the table. Well, we can already see without getting
1: to kind of much more sophisticated levels of general intelligence and so on, we can already see the next couple of stages. That is, we're going to have agents and then autonomous and semi-autonomous agents that are working in the background doing tasks for us where we don't have to tell them what to do or ask them to do it. They know how to do it. They get it done and tell us, oh, yeah, I made the plane reservations for you. Right. Things like that, where you didn't have to tell them, said, oh, I, I looked at your email and it said you were going to Philadelphia next week. So I looked up which flights and I know when your schedule looks like. So I got your reservation on the flight that you would like to take. You know, So you didn't have to think about it. There'll be a lot of stuff like that where you didn't have to think about it. Um, on the, the bigger question. Uh, This is something I've discussed a lot with my colleagues and my CEO, Mark Benioff, we were just having dinner and talking about it last night. Uh, And uh, there's two ways to think about this. The models that we're now building may become so powerful and so capable that for all in effect, they are as if they were achieving general intelligence. They behave Mm. as if they were, even if they weren't, right? Mm. They manifest behaviors like purpose, like intention, like uh, judgment and so on even if there's no purpose or intelligence behind it, but where the software generates it in a realistic and believable way. Separate from that is the whole question of are we actually developing a general intelligence? And if that's the case, it is more likely to be in a different paradigm than what we're doing right now. What we're doing right now, you don't add up to a kind of conscious self-aware. To do that, you need embodiment. That is, the thing needs to feel Physical embodiment. It needs to be connected to the real world. It needs to have senses. Uh, It needs to have extended memory. It needs to have purpose. All of those kinds of emergent properties and connections to the real world do not yet exist. So our AIs are disembodied, disconnected bits of software, as opposed to a, a real physical being connected to the real world, able to understand its connections and its intentions we're very far from that the original idea was model the brain and then build something like the brain we've almost given up on that because yeah. brain just proved to be too hard but the architectures to general intelligence don't really yet exist toward simulated general intelligence i.e
0: that it might as well be that we're moving toward yeah I, i'm not sure i entirely agree that you know that there's a meaningful difference between simulated general intelligence and general intelligence. You know, I'm a kind of behaviorist or a functionalist when it comes to these things, and if something kind of quacks like a duck, right, it, it, it has consciousness, as it were. Um, but, you know, notwithstanding that, I think we can certainly agree that these machines acting with other people um, or in conjunction with humans that's clearly some kind of augmentation of human intelligence. Human yeah. intelligence is already general intelligence. Um, I've been reading a book, um, uh, Superminds by Thomas Malone. I don't know if you've come across
1: mm-hmm.
0: it. Yeah. Talk- yeah. And and so he talks about how organizations, how we can already think yeah. of those as as a form of, you know, super intelligence. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And he's right. And and it seems like, you know, we we're just gonna make it possible for yet smaller units of organization. So maybe just, um, you know, a, a couple of developers or a developer and a kind of product person in conjunction with a uh, an AI, whether that AI is generally intelligent or not, as long as it's good enough at doing a lot of different tasks, um, you know, that is the now the equivalent of what would have been a thousand person organization, a 10,000 person organization even. Um, and, and that seems good enough to talk about having created some kind of meaningful superintelligence, even if it's it's not all within the, uh, the, the, um, the AI. I think
1: that's right. Look, I think augmented intelligence is a very powerful idea, right, that we as human beings are going to be made much more capable. Uh, I mean, a, a very simple example will be real-time translation, right? Mm. Uh, before long, I will speak a thousand languages. Right and but i didn't have to learn any right that's very powerful you know uh, imagine arriving in bhutan and speaking bhutanese i mean i love bhutan right but you know i can't even read you know the the characters are all different and you know i have no idea how to speak bhutanese but i'd love to be able to have a conversation with a Bhutanese uh teacher in bhutan but you know uh, I don't speak Bhutanese. Um, I, I, I and I'm pretty good at languages. I speak almost seven. Uh, I'd love to be able to, or well, I speak seven badly, including English. Having <laughs> said that, um, I'd I'd love to be able to. I uh, you know I spent I went to France for a summer uh, uh, in the mid '90s to study French, and I managed to learn French at the level of a five-year-old. Uh,
0: you know, that's pretty uh, good. That my you know my son's six, and he's uh, he's pretty yeah. local that's, that's well,
1: six, you know i spent 6 months studying every day you know uh 6 hours a day every day for 6 months
0: hmm.
1: and i got to the level of a 5 year old that's hmm. hyper inefficient as yep. a way of building uh a new capability i would much rather have been able to talk into this and have it come out french
0: i i think it depends what you're after right because i think there is you know part of me thinks wouldn't it be a shame that we lose all these capabilities, like to learn other languages? But, but then, you know, I realized that, you know, that's not going to stop happening. That there are people who just love to learn languages because yeah. they love, you know, they don't even, my, my wife's uh, my wife, parents are learning world. Japanese. And they've been yeah. learning Japanese for years. Yeah. They don't really want to speak to Japanese people. <laughs> they, they live in Argentina, and they've been to Japan once. Their fascination is with the language rather than being able to communicate in that language. So it's, it's really, I think, just a way of you know, extending our choices here, right? You can yeah. you can you can choose to do to the hard work if you want, but uh, you you might just want to order coffee or having really meaningful conversation um, without having to spend a decade learning uh, a language. Yeah.
1: Exactly. My wife loves learning Italian. She uses Duolingo every single day to study Italian because she loves it. Right. And she goes to Italy to paint and so on. And, and, but, you know, it, it's she knows how to navigate in an Italian and have a minimal conversation. In fact, literally as we speak, she's in her Italian study group right now.
0: Uh, and she loves it. Yeah. Do you see scenarios there where some some meaning? is potentially eroded by having you know just machines that are better at us I, i'm thinking um this is always the example that comes to my mind of, of lee sodal and uh, his declaration that he was going to stop playing go after he was uh, he lost to alpha go um right. it, but then i had a conversation about this recently and someone pointed out well you know lee sodal very competitive guy If you're getting your meaning from competition yeah sure you you might stop doing it but if you just like the activity um it doesn't matter that machines are better at it maybe that's a good thing you can play against the machine anytime you like um but yeah i'm I'm curious as to you know another
1: example we now have uh, ais that can do art right so i could draw a picture create an image that i like my wife is a watercolor painter the fact that I can use an AI to produce an interesting watercolor-like painting does not make her stop wanting to be a watercolor painter. The act of engaging, of deciding what it's and bringing it onto a piece of paper and so on—that's what she loves. And then seeing mm-hmm. it when it's done. Uh, so I—I—I uh, I, I don't think there's a real threat to the creative force mm-hmm. where there are. Uh, let me call it, you know. Let me call it say commercial art by contrast, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, advertising art, uh, game art. Those kinds of that kind of art that's more threatened by AIs because there your 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 goal is productivity and efficiency et cetera, things like that. If you're an artist, that's not your goal. You're not wanting to be hyper productive. It's the act of creating art. So I I, and I think it does matter what you're actually trying to accomplish.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's a nice uh, that's a nice take on things. Do you have any kind of counterintuitive um, or maybe better put views on AI that are not commonly held oh yeah one, big one overlooking
1: yeah look i think there's a really obvious one which is education <laughs> uh one of the things that we've learned over the years is that private personal tutoring makes a huge difference especially for the lower half of the class There's hmm. a kid who's not doing all that well in math or history or geography or science you give him a personal tutor and you can bring him up to the upper half of the class So imagine the world of education where everybody has a personal tutor in a device like this for every course, every class, everywhere. Uh, It helps them get every math question right, every history question right, uh, and helps them really learn. Suddenly, we can take the bottom half of the class, which was struggling in this incredibly complex technological world. Look, you and I have no trouble going online and making a dinner reservation. But if you were in the bottom half of your class, actually, that's a non-trivial thing. And these days, if you want to make a dinner reservation, you call the restaurant and they say, oh, uh, go to the uh, website and you can make your reservation. Sorry. And they hang up. Uh, and if you can't do that, you can't get the reservation or a plane reservation uh, or file your taxes. There's just so many tasks now that involve at least mid-level, uh, simple information technology tasks. Uh, And frankly, for the lower half of the class, that's hard. And many jobs are now excluded for the lower half of your class. And every class had a lower half, let's be clear. So now we can make everybody above average. Um, And uh, I, I think that is a very plausible outcome. It's one of the things that I think is one of the best things that's gonna happen out of this, an explosion in AIs for education, tutors for yeah. everyone in every field. Like my wife with uh, uh, Italian. She's got a personal Italian tutor in Duolingo, yeah. right? Yeah. That, that knows how she learns and has been learning with her now for years and is a very effective, and she loves it. She learns Italian. So I think this is uh, the future of education. It isn't the classroom is going to go away and teachers are going go away. This is going to supplement that and assure the high-level performance of every kid
0: yeah, it speaks to a future where AI can reduce inequality, and I think that's one of the central questions in my mind. Is you know, is that the one that's going to play out for the reasons that you've you've just outlined, or will we see something where AI applies a kind of magnifying effect to everyone's capabilities, and perhaps it's not even a kind of linear? uh one but one that boosts more the people who understand these models better are, are better able to craft prompts and and, and so forth and I, i'm really again I, i'm not sure what will happen we may see a bit of both it may be kind of uneven um there may be yeah. a few people who are kind of super winners and are able to force ai to do whatever they want breaking all the guardrails and so forth um and a very very long tail of people for whom it improves their lives but but to a lesser extent yeah um, I agree with that yeah, but certainly it's it's an exciting moment. Uh, are there any other technologies that you think that um you know AI seems to be taking up so much of the public attention now and, and climate change as well and and I think that's both of those are justified. um We talked a little bit about nuclear um technologies as well, but are there other ones which maybe are outside the public consciousness and deserve to be more within the spotlight?
1: Well, the the most obvious one is uh, the consequences of CRISPR, the ability to edit genes in a much more precise and reliable way. Uh, And just beginning to experience the first consequences of that technology with respect to new kinds of diagnostics, new kinds of therapies, etc. So genetic therapies of various sorts. Uh, we, We saw the first example, actually, mRNA vaccines. Mm. uh that for the pandemic the reason we were able to develop so rapidly the vaccines that would have taken years before was our knowledge now of genetics that produced the mrna vaccines uh so uh, we've already seen the first hint of what is to come and i think over the next call a decade or so we're likely to see a massive a revolution in a number of elements of uh, medicine as a result, both drug discovery and then specific interventions at a genetic level for a variety of kinds of issues. The first ones we're going to see, frankly, are in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Yeah. Uh, two diseases that are are genetic in in origin. And both of which we are now literally the last 48 hours announcing new therapies for both of those that are genetically based. Uh, successful treatments that radically slow the rate of Alzheimer's and uh, uh, and, uh, deterioration from Parkinson's. So I I think uh, that's one that I see as huge uh, mm. coming. And, you know, it, because it's medicine, it's highly regulated. So it plays out a bit more slowly. Yeah. It needs to be tested and made safe and so on. And that's what's going on right now. But uh, the uh, the tool that was created by Jennifer Doudna uh, is so profound in its effectiveness that I think its implication. Another place where we'll see it in a much more banal way is in plant biology. Things like mm plants that are much more productive or suited to climate change and so on. Because the same tools we're dealing with human biology, we're dealing with in plants, with uh, farm animals, with pigs and cows and so on and modifying those. So we we have a whole new set of genetic tools across a broad frontier of biology, human biology and other biology that are giving us the ability to help shape the future in new ways.
0: Yeah, I think you're right to say that, you know, in terms of a the technology being there, it's it's probably as fully baked as as AI. But it, mm-hmm. you point out to that, you know, that there's regulation here which is maybe just stopping it from um being adopted as, as quickly as as AI. I don't know whether that's a limit or a problem for CRISPR or rather a problem for AI. And and perhaps we've sort of let the, the AI cat out of the bag a little too quickly. I I'm not sure, but one of the things i learned recently is you know for years there's been um research into ELSI, the ethical legal so ethical legal and social implications of um genetics research which uh you know the funding for that has been earmarked since the beginning of the human genome project so it's been oh, a very well funded oh there, there were big debates in cambridge
1: massachusetts mm-hmm on, uh, uh, you know, basically mapping and altering DNA as Hmm. early as 1970. Yeah. Uh, So this has been, when we could see it coming, that explicit debate surfaced because of the obvious consequence, runaway bacteria and so on. So it was not hard to imagine the bad outcomes. It was, we already had regulatory frameworks for deal with this. So it was pretty straightforward to figure out what to do with respect to genetics in that regard
0: yeah yeah and it, I mean, certainly there's been a lot more there's 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 a lot more philosophers and ethicists involved in that field than than in yes. AI, which would surprise right. many people. I mean, many people are now I think the AI field must be growing very rapidly in 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 that area. but um nonetheless, I, I think we kind of did a lot of our thinking ahead of the fact. You know, years before CRISPR's invention, we're thinking about, well, what, what could we do with this? What's interesting though is we've, we've still not made up our mind on many topics. I think yes. most would agree that uh, therapeutic, non germline interventions are okay. Um, and then at the kind of other end of the scale is uh, enhancement in the germline, right? Yes. Could, which we could potentially do. We could maybe. It yeah. It will happen. Yeah. Uh, The one that is most obvious in
1: a good sense right now is sickle cell anemia. Sickle cell anemia is a single gene. So imagine, that, and and it's entirely plausible that in a a person who's already been born, you can modify that gene so that uh, in a a, a victim of sickle cell, you can actually cure them. Having said that, imagine that you could actually do that as a germline intervention as well. That means that their children won't have sickle cell either. Is that a bad thing?
0: Yeah, I I don't think it is. And I'm I'm always a little bit puzzled in these debates because there's a lot of um there's a lot of engineering of bacteria or of E. coli and so forth, where there's not this kind of germline, non-germline distinction. You make a change and it's gonna propagate, right? Um <laughs> and it's gonna, you know, potentially just last forever. So I'm I'm not really sure why that distinction seems so important um for humans, but we've just kind of said, oh well, just go ahead and you know, play with bacteria, you know, do do whatever you want, uh, and microbes. Um, And yet, we really just have decided not to allow that um, for, yeah, for for the human genetic code. Uh, But I'm inclined to agree. I think the debates will end up being somewhat moot, because someone is going to end up doing this, um, whether or not they have the approval of Everyone, it, it's going to happen. And exactly. if the benefits are seen, um, it's going to be very hard to to row back from that.
1: Yep, I agree. We're going to clone human beings, that will also happen. You know, you
0: can see it all coming. I, I, I'm surprised actually that the pace hasn't been quicker here, given how easy the technology is to, is to use. Well, um, well yeah, yeah to, to
1: do it, but to produce a desired outcome. There's still a right. lot of biology we don't understand. And so, it, you know, it, it It has moved slowly because not only of regulation, but it's hard science. It's, mm-hmm. The technology is easy, but the science is hard.
0: Yeah, right. Figuring out what to do, like the right edits yeah. to make. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Uh, any others, like any others that we're not, we're not thinking of enough? I, you've talked a lot about nanotechnology in the past. Is that something it, still is still than I thought uh but the one that is that has gone through a major discontinuity
1: is a uh, commercial space uh, yes. uh yeah. Elon Musk uh, among the, not only uh changed the electric vehicle market he's changed he's created the space market yeah he uh, started landing spaceships that changed everything my first job as a futurist was actually mission planning for the space shuttle at, at SRI back in 1973 And it uh, was a complete failure because it was based on science fiction. In effect, that is that we could do a launch a week, uh, as opposed to four launches a year. Um, Never going (laughs) to happen. Didn't happen. But Elon changed everything when he started landing his spaceships and bringing them back. Now the economics of space change really radically. Yeah. And and I and I think uh, we are opening up the potential of near space uh, uh, for tourism for better communications, uh, for better science. Um, uh, So I think there will be uh, eventually uh, what we're going to end up doing is asteroid mining. I think that's going to be one of the first useful things we can do in space Mm. and eventually create an industrial uh, base in orbit around Mm. the Earth uh, and move industry off the planet. Uh, because it's polluting and energy consuming. And out there, we've got essentially infinite solar energy and a huge resource base that we don't care about the pollution. Nobody cares about polluting a bit of vacuum out there. Uh, So uh, I I think uh, we have seen the space age didn't begin with uh, Sputnik. The space age began when uh, Musk landed his spaceships that's when you really started thinking about space as a really potential base for human operation.
0: Now, that, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I'm often... I, I do wonder what the big use cases of all that capacity, all that potential are going to be. I mean, certainly the communications one is, is something that, uh, you know, just from the industry that I've come from, I can envisage very clearly. Um and i think the kind of monitoring aspects of that are are also really important yeah. The, yeah. you know the ability to have very regular um frequent images coming from pretty much anywhere on the on the yeah. earth that that could be game changing for so many things you know,
1: yeah a planet labs that provides very cheap space imaging uh, all over the world every day uh, yeah. bill marshalls a good friend who started it and, you know, I think that is absolutely, uh, you know, a, a game changer for so many things. You you want to understand what's happening to the forests of the world. You have to see them, yeah. for example. Uh, yeah. And you, we now can. So I think it's that's another right. one. Yeah. I, 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 I do think that's a, a very important one. Um, and, 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 and the truth is, I think tourism. I think people are going to want to go up and hang out in zero gravity and enjoy it, the experience of space and watching the earth go by. For a Few days, space hotels. You know, I I tried to convince my friend Richard Branson to buy the space station uh, when it uh, uh, they're going to deorbit it sometime in the next decade. Uh, you know, crash it into the ocean in pieces. Why not uh, turn it into a you know Virgin Orbital? He's got Virgin Galactic, Virgin Orbital mm-hmm. to the space station. I, I think it's
0: ideal location. Well, if that happens, we'll we'll, we'll know who planted the seed in his head. So that's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. I- and for industry, what what sort of things do you think it might make sense to produce in space? I guess the well, kind of the, the low like gravity. It. Sorry. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And any heavy materials. Basically, mm-hmm. what you wanted, anything you want to use in space, you should make in space. You shouldn't lift right. things up in space. Um, so and you can even get water and oxygen out of asteroids. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to make stuff up there. Um, and uh, you know. You, uh, you, you want to have an orbital hotel? Make the steel for the orbital hotel, or aluminum, or whatever it is you want to use mm-hmm. for up mm-hmm. there. Um, so there's no reason why we shouldn't have uh, most of our industry off planet for making things that are heavy and polluting, like making steel. Yeah, right.
0: So, so most of the industry you envisage would be sort of centered around building up infrastructure in space, probably for like space tourism and or you know, possibly even developing just like kind of industrial hub. But I, I yeah, I'm trying to, or, but we wouldn't be sending stuff back to the earth, as it were.
1: Oh, we might be. We might be bringing steel down. Okay. Bringing down is a lot easier than bringing right, them up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it's not at all implausible. And particularly if we're making things that are relatively lightweight and bringing them down. Yeah. So I, I do imagine that that will happen. But call that the next 50 years, not the next five. Uh, right. And you know, most of what we're going to do is in near-Earth orbit, the, ne- the near few thousand miles. Uh, we're not going to Mars. Maybe we'll do some stuff on the moon. But there really isn't that much interesting on the moon. And there isn't much interesting on Mars. So our, our solar system, other than the Earth, is not all that interesting, to be honest. So I, I don't see a lot of human exploration of deep space
0: beyond that until we can build starships. Right. Do you think it's an important idea, nonetheless, that we aim to get further than? Yes, I the do. Moon the Earth? Yeah, the well, in fact, I wrote an essay
1: on this, uh, and, and it's a book, an essay, and, and I gave a long uh, talk on it. It was called Scenarios for Starships, mm-hmm. right? And, and one of the points I made is that if we don't develop starships, we're stuck in our solar system. Yeah. Uh, and our solar system is uninteresting. So our, our horizons will be fundamentally limited. Uh, And I think that's a bad thing for the species. Uh, So I I, I do think building a starship and getting out of the solar system uh, is ultimately a good idea. Uh, Now, we're talking a century or more from now. Uh, But in fact, I'm part of a project called the Hundred Year Starship Project, uh, which long now launched with uh, NASA Ames. Oh, about 10 years ago. Uh, and it's you know a, a small community beginning to think about what it will take to actually build a variety of different forms of starships, long sleep ships, multi generational, or even figuring out new physics. So um, I I I I think conceptually the idea that we're reaching beyond the solar system is a very important idea.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's not an easy problem, right? Oh, <laughs> I, 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 you'll know better than anyone. Yeah, immensely tricky and even if we figure out how to do it, it it would be a huge project. Do you think think we have the right kind of attitudes yet to be able to undertake such a project? Do we need to get beyond, let's say, the hump of the the climate crisis? and, and, And is that the point where there might be a change in our thinking?
1: Well, it, 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 you've linked something that is very important and, and potentially a very interesting scenario. Look, if, we are, if the world learns how to cooper, uh, cooperate to deal with climate, mm-hmm. which we do need to, uh, that, that very same uh, cooperation gene we implant may be what we need to build, for example, starships to explore the near galaxy and so on. Uh, and so, you know, moving from a nationalistic, self-protective view toward a more global view uh, of how uh, people uh, uh, can collaborate to solve massive problems is n- not an implausible, but challenging scenario. In fact, just yesterday, I was thinking God, how, you know, you think about the war in Ukraine and uh, people fighting over little bits of dirt on mm. the surface, you know, uh, that, that nationalism is so important. Ukrainians are willing to fight and die to protect it. Russians are willing to fight and die to seize it. Um, And that somehow we have not yet transcended the nationalism of protecting bits of turf, you know, uh, on the planet and transcend the fact that we all belong on this earth. Um, a good friend of mine is Rusty Schweikert, the astronaut. He was the Apollo 9 lunar module pilot. In fact, we just honored him a few weeks ago as one of the founders of the law, of, of B612, the Asteroid Institute. And, uh, you know, when Rusty was in space, he was one of the first astronauts to have this kind of transcendent experience of the Earth as a kind of unified entity and said, mm-hmm. there are no borders that I see from space. All I see is the flow of life all over the planet. And he had a kind of, Truly cosmic experience of the unity of life on the planet, and it changed him forever. Uh, mm. And what he chose to do with the rest of his life as a result. And I think uh, uh, until we get that kind of sense of uh, shared fate that we all share—the same fate on this planet—you uh, know, nationalism will continue to get in our way. What message would you like to leave people with? Oh, unequivocally, to be optimistic about the future. Uh, but there's an enormous amount of of pessimism around, whether it's about economics or war and peace or uh, climate change and so on. Uh, Almost every movie or book about the future is dark. Uh, Whereas I look at the sweep of human history and I see immense progress. Look, I was born in a refugee camp in Germany in 1946 of concentration camp survivors. And I look at what's happened to my life over the last uh, 75 years. And it's transformative when I look at how people lived when I was a child versus how they live today and the opportunities in front of them. Are the challenges of all the big issues of climate change and economics and geopolitics absolutely real? but are they worse than the challenges of the 1930s and Nazism and so on? I don't think so. Uh, And humanity rose up to deal with those kinds of things. We solved the economic problem. We defeated the fascists. Uh, uh, The Cold War ended without nuclear war. And uh, yeah, there might be a new Cold War with China and we probably will have some tensions over the next few decades. But what I see is almost unrelenting progress. Uh, Over the last 30 years, billions of people have climbed out of poverty, literally billions. We have a couple more billion to go, so we haven't solved all the problems on the planet. But when I look at the rate of human progress, the science and technology we have in front of us, and the level of cooperation, despite all the annoyances globally, I'm actually very optimistic, and I think people should be optimistic about the future. I think their kids are going to be better off than they are.
0: Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, and I think you're right. The, the, evidence, the evidence, at least from the long arc of time, is, is pointing that way. We have yes. problems. We've always had problems. Some of our problems now are are, are bigger than ones we've faced in the past. But um, on the other hand, I think the, the the technology that we have now is is clearly superior to anything that we've had in the past. Yeah. As well. Exactly. Exactly. So that's my message. Well, I think that's a very fine message to end on. Peter Schwartz, thank you so much. Uh, this has been really, really informative and Uh, I would recommend that everyone check out the Long Nail Foundation and and your book, The Art of the Long View, uh, as well. My pleasure. Happy to talk with you. thank you for listening this is a quick note to say that i'm going to experiment with moving this to a fortnightly cadence so one podcast every two weeks um just so i can see how that feels to have a bit more time to polish things and prepare for interviews um so yeah hope that sounds good and catch you next time